Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Hello, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now, first of all, just an apology for missing last week's episode. I was actually down with a a bad case of laryngitis and you would not have liked to have listened to me squeaking. So um, we've had to miss one, which is the first since the launch in July. But we're back in business now and I'm full strength again, as you can hear. Now, today I'm talking to Eileen Brayton and Anne Wall, who are co-authors of a book called Home Comforts, which I'm going to actually let them explain to you just what that's all about. Hello there, Anne and Eileen. Hello. Hello. Yes, we're going to talk about Home Comforts today, which is our project, which we started 12 years ago, and which looks at the role of the Red Cross Auxiliary Hospitals in the Old North Riding during World War I. Um, And this started, as I say, 12 years ago, when we were invited by East Roundton Village Hall to set up a World War I hospital. Um, as their hall had been used um, for such a purpose during the war. Uh, they were celebrating their centenary and it had been a major part of their work uh, having this hospital and looking after all these men. So we said yes and then thought, goodness me, we don't know the first thing about World War One hospitals in the uh, North Riding. So we went to Red Cross, uh, which uh, we, we know well because we work for Red Cross as trainers and as first aid um people. And uh, we asked if there was anything about World War I. And the only thing that they could point us to was a picture of Lady Florence Bell. And she, as it turned out, uh, was the president of the local um, Red Cross at the time. Um, And she was also the commandant of the East Roundton Hospital. Aha, we thought this is a good thing. Uh, At least we've got a start for our hospital uh, uh, exhibition. So we took that picture off the wall and then somebody said, ah, but in the drawer, we've got a we've got a document that you might be interested in. And they pulled out this lovely book, which turned out to be the original reports for the whole of the North Riding during the time of the First World War. Um, And in this book, uh, all the details that we could possibly wish to see were there. Uh, There were the names of the nurses who served in the various hospitals, and there were 32 of those hospitals, so a lot. Uh, There were all the details of the money that they spent, the money they raised to to get the hospitals up to speed, uh, the money, uh, what it was used on in the end, um, and lots and lots of details about uh, other people who worked in the hospitals, the number of men they looked after, uh, what was, uh, how many deaths they had, all that sort of information And from that, we were able to create an exhibition at East Roundton Village Hall. And we're very satisfied to see that people came up and said, oh, yes, I know that name. That was my aunt. She was a nurse in in World War I. And so little stories began to come out. And we so enjoyed that experience that we thought that we would go on and we would do some more work and a bit more research. And that's what we did, wasn't it, Eileen? Indeed, we have done. For the last 12 years, it's carried on because this was going to be a one-off and we got so enthusiastic about it, we've carried on. We've visited all the hospital's sites that still exist. There's one or two that don't, um, but the uh, main body of the buildings still exist. They're either village halls or town halls like in Thursk. Uh, County Hall in North Allerton was used. Um, and 
very grand houses like Duncan Park and Hovingham Hall um, and everything in between, really. And some places knew that they'd been used, but a lot of them didn't. So when we turned up telling them about it, they were absolutely intrigued, as were we. Um, we had some lovely experiences. We went to um, a Wellburn School, which is over near the coast, and were introduced to the uh, history master there who happened to have a CD of a photograph album of the hospital as it was in the, in the school building uh, during World War I. And it was there with the nurses and the, the VADs, as they were known, the voluntary aid detachments, um, these volunteer nurses and their patients sitting up in their beds. And the children who were pupils at the school were intrigued to know where these buildings were, which rooms they were in and all the rest of it. So it was a really lovely experience, as have been lots of others. So we've gone round these 32 buildings, finding more and more about them, but also realised that it, there was a lot of social history involved in this. We learnt about the VADs. Um, these were young women, mainly, though some of them were older, um, who were, had a little bit of money behind them because they had to buy their own uniforms and be self-sufficient. Um, they were trained in first aid. The detachments did first aid training usually by the local GP, and they did um, training in cookery because they had to feed all these uh, soldiers who were turning up, and home nursing. So the VADs wore a sort of blue, um, like a chambray dress, which we actually have an original one. I visited somebody who said to me, I've got something to give to Red Cross. And it was her mother's original uniform that she'd had carefully folded up in a drawer in tissue paper from the days when her mother had worked as a VAD at County Hall in North Allerton. Um, so this was absolutely wonderful. It's got the dress, this very starched collar. It's like, you know, absolutely rigid um, sleeve protectors and not the apron. The apron was missing. So we had to have an apron made. But the apron's quite important. They were all full length, virtually. They were down to the to the feet. Um, and the apron had the red cross on, um, on the bib. Um, you can imagine the old-fashioned uniform. The bib had the, as I say, the red cross, which had to be the proper red cross with five equal squares in them, which is a proper um, emblem for the British Red Cross which is actually owned by the MOD, but they let the, the Red Cross internationally and locally use. So they had to sew that on themselves. They had to make the Red Cross themselves and sew it on. So you see in photographs that some of them are a little bit different from others. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we did see a lovely little story about <laughs> um, some of these young girls wanted to look as if they'd been doing it for years and so they sort of bleached their Red Cross a little bit. So it looked as if it had been in the wash a lot. Um, it didn't look quite so fresh. 
And also, um, talking about uniforms, the uh, the person who owned the home or a, a sort of prominent lady in the uh, in the group would be the commandant of the hospital, and the commandant's uniform was bright red. So you were left into no, no doubt as to who was in charge of this hospital. Um, and so obviously the ladies in the grand houses, uh, they knew their house backwards and they knew how to run a household, so they were very useful in that respect in getting everybody to work. And sometimes actually they, uh, their cooks and their chambermaids and their um, other uh, chauffeurs all worked as well to help look after these soldiers. So it was a really good group effort. But we mustn't forget the men because there were men VADs as well. Not all men could go to war because they were either too old, incapacitated, or maybe uh, were pacifists, so they didn't believe in going to war and actually fighting. So they were able to do their bit as well um, as male VADs, and and their jobs were really to look after the house, uh, to make sure the fires were stoked up well, and that they were looked after them at night, so they did night duty to make sure everybody was safe. Um, and they had a huge task too of transporting the patients from the stations uh, to the to the hospitals, and that could have been on many many different forms of transports. We've had really amusing pictures of poor men who and and the things that they were expected to be transported on, um, such as uh, you know rickety sort of stretchers going over high bridges like they did at Saltburn when they had to go over the Hapney Bridge to get to the hospital there. Uh, from the station. And you can imagine the poor men going over this bridge thinking, where on earth are they taking me to? And the only consolation was that they didn't charge the uh, toll of Hapney uh, because they were wounded soldiers and they'd been doing their bit for the country. So that was must have been a relief to them, I'm sure. Um, but they were very uh, essential to transporting and, and doing things with these um, patients. The network, um, the railway network to the Old North Riding was huge at that time. And that's probably why there are so many hospitals in our area, because um, obviously they had all these stations. So it made it very easy for the transportation of soldiers when they were first arrived back in this country. When they had been seen um, to be injured over in France or Belgium or wherever they were, sometimes they were given treatment there and then. Sometimes they went to major hospitals and had treatment actually before they got transported across the ocean and back into this country. Uh, but the vast majority came over on hospital ships, um, which sailed under huge problems, really, and at risk of being um, being torpedoed by the enemy. Um, they were then set on this country's shores and put on the nearest available train. And we often get asked, did they go, were they sent back to where they lived uh, to go to a hospital? And the answer to that is no. In fact, the, the war, uh, Minister of War, did not want them to go back to their family uh, places because actually they felt that they would never go back to war again if their families saw the state they were in. So they just got on a train and were sent off to where, wherever they needed to go. Um, sometimes they had to stop at major hospitals to have treatment first. So they uh, for this area, that would be York, or it might be Leeds, or it might be Newcastle. Um, and then once they'd had their surgery and were sort of recovering, and that's what we're talking about, really, these hospitals were convalescent hospitals, um, then they would get sent to the hospitals and there they would be nourished and looked after well and, and, and entertained and fed so that they were, they were sort of uh, really looked after very well in these hospitals uh, and, and loved the treatment that they received. And we know this because we've seen lots of 
postcards that soldiers sent to their families to say how well they were being looked after uh, and also to say what a lovely part of the country they were staying in, but very quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So these chaps were generally young men. Um, Some of them had had really serious injuries. They'd had amputations that still needed dressing. Um, Some of them had been ill rather than had been injured. So they'd had um, either sort of pneumonia or um, kidney problems. Um, They had terrible trouble with rheumatism, it seemed. They'd spent a lot of time in cold, wet conditions and they did suffer. Um, So they weren't all actually injured. But there was a, a role for the VAD in dealing with their injuries, putting dressings on, which apparently were extremely painful. They talk a lot about the pain of these dressings um, and how important it was to do it really very well. Of course, we're talking about time when there were no antibiotics, so the, the danger of infection was huge um, and they tended to be very dirty wounds. So there was a lot of importance laid on the um, washing hands properly and dealing with things in, in a, a clean as possible way, which must have been exceedingly difficult on the um, hospital trains and hospital ships that Anne was mentioning, and uh, but more easy in, in the hospitals that they eventually arrived in. Um, you talking, sorry. sorry, you mm. talking about dressings reminded me, Eileen, that uh, one of the uh, sort of initiatives that went on in the area was that local people and particularly school children before they went to school used to pop out over to the moors or into the dales and, and pick sphagnum moss, which was an excellent dressing. Um, and so they needed vast quantities of this. So they would get picked and then it would be sent down to York where it would be washed and all the creepy crawlies taken out of it. And then it would be um, compressed and put between two sheets of gauze and made into a dressing and then sent off to the front. Um, And it was very good because sphagnum moss, of course, is extremely absorbent. It can hold up to 20 times its weight in in water Um, and, and of course, a a natural thing and had some antiseptic qualities as well. Uh, But to... uh, enhance those qualities sometimes they put a little bit of garlic juice on to actually make it uh, a little bit more antiseptic and helpful and there was a huge uh, business went on with this in york with the uh, again red cross volunteers doing the washing packing it up and sending it off um, and and these poor children doing all these jobs and that wasn't the only thing they got up to in the local north riding uh, one of the other things that they did was to make sandbags and again, we have a lovely photo in our exhibition of some school children sitting on the um, the on the platform at Middlesbrough, uh, surrounded by thousands of sandbags. And these school children had sewn all these sandbags ready to be sent off to London by train, and that's where they were sat on the doorstep at Middlesbrough Station, waiting to be sent off to a very hard job to be done. And they weren't the only people to be sewing them. There were lots of uh, other women around the county actually doing the same job as well. And I guess they're, they're actually quite heavy. They would be quite heavy, the sandbags oh, too. and very hard on your fingers yes, to sew yeah, with the coarse sort of the twine that they had to use. And there were very explicit instructions from London about how they were to be done. And the instructions that we have seen that were sent by telegram to the areas were saying things like, you know, if you don't make it to these exact specifications, then you could be responsible for a, a soldier dying in the trenches and they'll send it 
back to you if it's not, if it doesn't come up to standard. So very, <laughs> very poor. <laughs> so that sort of led us on to thinking about what children did. We, we hadn't realised really how much involvement there was with children. They made sandbags, as Anne's just talked about, and grenade bags as well. Um, and then, and collectors, sphagnum moss, and we've met people who did that in the Second World War as well. That carried on, apparently. Um, but the other thing they did was collect eggs. Food was one of the things they could do for these soldiers. Um, and nourishing them was really important in their recovery. And eggs were seen as a very important nutritional diet for people who'd had um, poor diet, really, up until then. And also had uh, often had facial injuries, so they weren't able to eat very well. Um, so th- we had a recipe book, an original recipe book from Red Cross that tells us all sorts of recipes for eggs, which had been collected from 1917, I think it was, onwards by the National Egg Collection. Um, there was a shortage of eggs developing, and so children were sent out to anywhere in their area, which of course in our area was quite a rural place, so there, there were plenty of farms and people keeping hens, collected any spare eggs they had. They were taken to the local elementary school by the children, and then they were distributed from there to primarily to the hospitals. They, they got the first go. If there were any spare, they went to local people, but generally they were for the hospital patients. And we found other things, that nice little stories about people in Beedale, apparently, one of the shops there made ice cream for the soldiers and made sure that they had that to help build them up. And in North Allerton, apparently, one of the shops um, baked special tea cakes, current tea cakes, and took them up to County Hall at regular intervals to treat the patients. And so it went on. There was a sort of really feeling of these were boys who needed to be cared for in a sort of motherly way, which was very much part of what the community could do for them. And of course, we must mention the knitting as well, Eileen, because in our uh, exhibition, we have got masses of knitting, uh, thanks to the uh, Tynan Weir ladies in crochet, uh, sewing and crochet killed. Um, and they were, uh, they came to see one of our exhibitions and we got a little bit of knitting on some, um, on some knitting needles, just as a, an example of what went on during that period. Um, and the lady sort of wasn't very impressed with our knitting skills and said they certainly it wasn't World War One knitting wool um, and, and not following a pattern. So she volunteered her members to make us some um, uh, from the original patterns put out in the Red Cross uh, book, knitting book and uh, sewing book. Uh, they knitted us huge quantities of socks and um, balaclava helmets and bandages and all sorts of things, um, so that we could have that on our exhibition. And when we go round and little boys look at the balaclava helmet, which has very fetching ear covers um, for when they're not using the uh, the radio on the, uh, in the trenches, um, the little boys love putting that on and, and having a look at the things. But an amazing amount of knitting went on in the North Riding. They sent things, and the socks in particular. There's a little story about how uh, young girls who were knitting the socks sometimes put a little note down the bottom of the toe. So when the soldier put his sock on, uh, he felt something a bit crunchy down the bottom of the toe. And there was this little sign, a little note that sort of said, good luck, soldier, or I'll be thinking of you, which was really nice. And they did the same for the eggs as well, didn't they, Eileen? They did. Sometimes they wrote messages on the eggs 
um, to say, get well, soldier, you know, we're thinking of you. So that was a really, really nice part of the of the effort of the people in the North riding them. So that's partly why we call the book Home Comfort, mm. because we realised as we went along that this was very much part of it. It was a real community effort, not only to find the equipment for the hospital. Here was a private house, for instance, that had to be set up as a hospital. They had to find beds and bedding and crockery and cutlery, all of which they did have help with from the government, but not enough to to create a proper comfortable hospital, which is what they were aiming for. And there does seem to have been a little bit of competition about whose hospital was best and (laughs) and best equipped, um, as you can imagine. Um, So they, they did... All this sort of home comforts were very much part of what the community were providing. And perhaps we should talk yes. about the jam. Yes, do. Yes, <laughs> because they made lots of jam. Yeah, it's not a problem. And, and the favourite jam was plum and apple jam, actually. Uh, and some of you may have seen um, some cartoons by a chap called Bruce Bairnfather, who was out in the trenches and used to spend some of his spare time, and there were times when they weren't actually fighting and they were a little bit bored, he would do some lovely uh, little cartoons, really, of life in the trenches and what the soldiers were up to and what they were saying to each other. And our favourite cartoon that he did uh, is one that shows a soldier peering into a big jar of plum and apple jam and saying, oh, when the heck is it going to be strawberry? And and I think that sums it up really that you know that, that this was one of those big things that, that people all over the place were making this plum and apple jam and the poor soldiers were eating it and very grateful for it, but you know were longing to have a different variety. But I suppose plums at that time were were very uh, very cheap and very available, especially in our area. So that was probably one of the reasons why. Having got all this um, information together and having worked with lots of local history groups around the areas where our hospitals were, we suddenly thought, well, we've got an awful lot of information here um, and we want to share this with people because we know from going around doing lots of talks to local WIs and history groups and school children and other, other groups that not many people knew about this bit of our history. So we decided perhaps it would be a very good thing to put it all together into print, really, and and share this information. And we got lots of photos of soldiers and we got lots of correspondence from people. And so we decided that we would publish a book uh, and we wanted to do it on the we wanted to actually launch it on the 11th of the 11th, 2014. Um, and we decided this in January 2014 and having never written a book before, we suddenly found this was a very tight schedule. Um, and uh, But actually we managed to do this and this meant that we were able to give a book to each of the places that uh, still existed as a hospital and sometimes to a library or whatever that was near to a place if it didn't exist anymore. Um, and we had a really nice launch in North Allerton uh, and we had, would you believe, scones and plum jam because we felt that was appropriate. Um, and lots of people came from a lot of our contacts from the, from the areas where the houses were and local history groups. And Lord Craythorne came because he'd been very helpful to us and he'd written a, for, uh, a sort of little foreword for the book. Um, and that was a really nice occasion. And from there on, we've been able to go with our book with our exhibition, we've got lots of little um, items that people have given us. So we've got uh, lots of medical instruments. 
lots of bedpans, lots of enema <laughs> kits, which <laughs> sort of come <clears throat> from that period, really, and lots of nice stories that go with them, which sort of brings the project alive, both to us and to our audiences, we hope. And we've also made other contacts um, and one of the most important ones to us over the last year has been the Nursing Memorial Appeal, which Eileen will be able to tell you about. Indeed. Well, we happened to hear about um, a group of women who, but led by one particular woman, who, who were um, involved with selling a property in London that had been a club for VADs when they came back to England and after the war. Um, a sort of ladies' club for sort of um, socialising, really. And this building had lost and the group had lost its uh, use. And so they decided to sell it. With the money, they had realised that there was absolutely no memorial to nurses in the National Arboretum, the National Memorial Arboretum near Litchfield. Um, so they would decide that they would have a, a, an appeal and create a new um, memorial to nurses who'd been killed in the First and Second World Wars. We were lucky enough to get involved with that and went to the um, opening of it, the sort of unveiling of it, uh, this summer. And we had previously sent in names of people that we knew in our area who'd been killed, nurses who'd either died of infections that they caught from the patients, probably, and that included Spanish flu, of course, which was so um, rampant after the war, as well as actually injuries that they'd received. Um, so those names went on to the memorial, which is a beautiful stone globe um, with all these names, proud of the, they're not engraved, they sit proud of the, of the globe, um, all over it, held by... Uh, hands which are actually the, modelled on the sculptor's hands, who is a woman, so they look quite feminine hands, holding the globe and with all these names enclosed in it. It was um, a very moving service, actually. It was a little service that they held by the river in the Arboretum, if you will be, if you do go, um, with the intention that, because a lot of the, well, quite a, a considerable number of nurses were actually killed when they were transporting patients in, in the ships. Um, and they wanted it to be near water because of that, which we wouldn't have picked up on it if we hadn't had that explained to us, really. It was, um, a, uh, Countess of Wessex was there, um, and she's taken a great interest in all this sort of work that went on in, with the nursing services in, in World War One, and was lovely with the... Um, two very elderly ladies who were there. Mm. There was one who'd been at Dunkirk wearing her Red Cross uniform from that era um, and another very elderly lady who'd been a VAD. Um, and so it was as well as modern day mm. um, soldiers and mm. sailors. They were all there. All mm. the three services were mm. represented. And and I oh. think it, it was a, it, yes, it, it sort of brought a tear to your eye, didn't it, really, to see oh. so many people. Uh, we were very fortunate to be able to speak to the Countess of Wessex, so we gave her a copy of our book after it had been inspected by the uh, Royal uh, <laughs> royal Detectives to make sure we hadn't got any explosives in it. <laughs> um, but uh, 
I, th- I think the other thing that we need to say about this appeal is that um, it wasn't only going to be money for this memorial, although obviously a lot of money went into that memorial, but the other um, uh, the other bit of the funding is going to working with um, Manchester University. And what they're hoping to do is to set up a course for nurses who were involved in fields of conflict and, and future wars. Um, to actually equip them adequately so that they can perform this task, because obviously it needs, a, 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 you know, a more structured approach, and there, there are different ways of nursing uh, employed when you're in a conflict situation than you would have if you were in a, an NHS situation. And as nurses ourselves, we felt that this was a very good cause. So um, all the copies of our books that we're selling now go towards this fund. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, so that's what we're doing with the money, and 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 actually, I think uh, I think that would be very good. We were talking to some army nurses only yesterday, actually, and we were telling them about this because obviously they uh, know at first hand what this involves, which is an entirely different situation to you'd find, uh, you know, in this country. So that's that's one of the important things, really. Can I, can I just ask? Sorry, mm. before mm. before we continue. You're going around giving talks, but are the um, artifacts and the things that you've gathered, are they under display anywhere else? No. They're not? <laughs> They're not, no. And that, that's a sad part because we don't have a local museum uh, that's available to us where we would love to be able to to show them, really. And, that, and that's a, a great sadness. So at the moment, they live in Eileen's garage and we <laughs> take them out and travel around the country with them. Um, and they range from all sorts of things. So we've got, you know, original stretchers and wheelchairs. Um, we've got items such as uh, the uniforms, obviously. Uh, we've got um, different instruments. We've got a, a little soldier's pouch that has got uh, all the original sort of instruments that they'd have when, you know, that they hold around mm. their belt to help out in a in a in an army situation. Um, We've got a beautiful thing that was given us that we thought was, um, when we looked at the at it, that it was used for giving an anaesthetic, but we weren't terribly sure. A lovely little sort of glass pipette type thing with, with rubber bungs at each end. And we went to do a talk out in the Dales. And fortunately, there was a pharmacist there who said, oh, yes, yes, you're quite right. That is definitely used for giving um, the anaesthetics. We've got all sorts of interesting uh, medicine bottles. Uh, we've got bits and pieces of, of bandaging um, and bedpans and uh, and photographs of, of different things. So it, it is huge. I mean, when we did our launch, we had it all out um, in the, in the um, forum at the at North Allerton, uh, and the place was filled. And because we'd also received a, a lottery, um, National Heritage Lottery Award, um, which we'd been able to get because we uh, actually joined forces with the North Yorkshire Record Office, which was very helpful to us because they knew how to fill these forms in. Um, so we got this um, lottery grant to work with them. Um, and that enabled us to actually do some more in the way of having some things that could be left in areas. So we've got a series of eight pull-ups, which, if you like, are a, a, a sort of a resume of what our our exhibition is all about. Um, and they've been able to go, we got uh, enough money to we could fund two lots of those. So sometimes they go to libraries in local places or or actually some of the hospitals themselves have had them as an example. And then we don't have to leave precious items hanging around. 
But no, our our, our it's, it's pity really because I'm our sure. real worry is mm. is what's going to happen to all this at the end because you know we're not going to go on forever talking about mm. it. And um, but it really is a, a a really little microcosm of of what went on at that particular time and some of the things that were used at that time. Um, so we've got to think what might happen to it. Yeah. Where to, where to go? Where from to go here. from here? Yeah. Yes, I think. Uh, well, I don't know how you go about this, no. but it would sound <laughs> like it's something to look into. Yes, that's right. That's yes. right. Yeah. We've so been, you, we've been lucky enough to have it displayed in museums. Yes. Um, oh, several yes. times. Yes. It's been yeah. at the Richmond Museum a couple of times. Yeah. The Rydale Folk Museum several yeah. times. Yeah. Um, and, and the Castle Museum in York. We, we did a, a three month, um, we had a three month exhibition in the Castle Museum, which was really lovely. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was the first time we'd done it actually for a specific organisation. And we were amazed at, you know, all the rules that you had to follow and everything. But it, we learned an awful lot about how to display things and how to get the best out of them. And we had a, we had a little sort of audio visual thing as well that ran in the room where all this display was going on, which uh, which enhanced it as well. It did. Um, and also the comments that from people who visited it, because obviously we were, we couldn't be there all the time it was on. Um, so that was really interesting, wasn't it, to sort of get comments from school children and other people mm. about it. So that was that was nice. So, so uh, you know, we've learned an awful lot about the process of this, uh, having started from absolutely <laughs> nothing at all. Um and, you know, it's been uh, really amazing the number of times that people have spoken to us and given us little snippets of information about their history or their family or a building. Uh, and and it's been all part of a big jigsaw puzzle, which we've been able to put together and, and has been a fascinating project for us and still is because we still keep uh, getting things. Yesterday when we were talking to the, um, well, the Air Force really, wasn't it, RAF Leeming, uh, there was a chap who is a diver and he's actually been diving um, off the, the northeast coast uh, to the ship, the Rohilla, uh, which was sunk by enemy um, action um, in the North Sea. Uh, and he was saying, oh, well, I've got all sorts of things and, and I would be very happy for you to have some of the things that he's got from the Rohilla hospital ship. So goodness only knows what we're going to get in Eileen's <laughs> garage next. We're not quite sure. I hope you've got a large garage, yeah. Eileen. Yes. It's just filling yeah. fast. It's filling yeah. fast. It doesn't have a car in it, that's for sure. Not. <laughs> so, so I think that's really our, our project in a nutshell, isn't it? Yes. No, that's absolutely fascinating. It really is. Um, so if anyone wants to um, contact you, this email address that you gave me, this is um, info at northridingvadhospitals.co.uk. Yes, that's, right. that's right, And yes. they will get one of you if they, yes. If yes. they email there. They will, yes. Okay. Yeah. And the book is Home Comforts. Home Comforts. Now, how do yeah. they get hold of the book? Well, we, we have the copies of the book with us, so you could get it through that website, uh, although it was sold initially on Amazon, so it's it still it does appear on Amazon. So you could get the details of it from there, and then and then you can get that off the web. Okay, so well. it so would be it yes. would be um, titled Home Comforts. Yes, the yeah. role of Red Red Cross Auxiliary Hospitals that's in the right. North Riding. That's exactly right. That's yeah. it. Yes, yeah. yeah, so right. um, yeah. they can find it that way. That's right. Yeah. So I think I just just that just leaves me to say thank you very much. That's been fascinating, okay. fascinating, and I'm sure you get a lot of uh, a lot of positive comments from the people that you go around and visit. Mm, we we do. certainly do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, so this is Susan now signing out from inside Yorkshire. <laughs>